Welcome to the OA Lighting Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep the, this special service active. The, opin- the opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are th- uh, those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Sue. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Jude, <laughs> and I, I am a compulsive overeater and um, a body obsessor to the extreme. And, Leslie, thank you so much for asking me to come tonight. When you asked me, I didn't put it together that it was my um, birthday because it's been a long time, <laughs> like, tw- you know, 26 years. Don't do the math. Proud of my age. Don't do it. Um, in fact, I can never really remember whether my birthday is on the 6th or the 7th of October. My sponsor will often text me and say, happy birthday, you know, to remind me. I have another program friend who emailed me and said, happy birthday. But they emailed me yesterday, texted me yesterday. But on my phone, I have um, the big book. And, it, and it's a counter. There, it offers me, everyone, an option in the app to put your abstinence state in. And when I did, I marked it as the seventh. So according to my big book on my phone, which is what I'm going with, today is my uh, 26 years. Um, so I saw a few hands of people who are new and or returning. Happy birthday, by the way. So good to see you, Lori. Um, so I'm guessing, other than the newcomers, Everybody is a compulsive overeater in one form or another in this room. And I'm guessing that if you did something with food, I probably did it too. Or if you're doing it, I did it. Um, I want to spend just a few minutes and, uh, and say what it was like. I ate anything and everything unless it was chicken liver um, or vegetables. Um, didn't really like those. I did a lot of face planting into cakes. I forget, in this meeting, are we allowed to mention foods? Okay. Um, good. I'm going to mention food. No, not really. But, yeah, I mean, if it was sweet and doughy, I ate it, and I sometimes wore it. Um, one of the things that I tried to do prior to surrendering to this as a disease and surrendering to it as surrendering to OA as a solution, because I had heard of it, I had tried it, I hated it, I wasn't in it in my, I was 20, 21, coming out of OA and thinking I could do this my own way, some other way. There were lots of books out there that could supposedly help you. Um, is this water for me? Oh, my God, thank you. I totally forgot to bring water into my car. And even though this is, OA is my room. It's your room, too. But, like, I feel like I should not be nervous anymore. Like, I've been doing this a long time, but I'm nervous. Mm. So, one of the things that I tried, and this was one of my bottoms, um, I had many bottoms, but this was leading up to the big one, is as obsessed as I was with um, chocolate and cake, I, I had heard that if you were willing to embrace what you were so afraid of, and really dig into that, in my case, chocolate and cake, um, and just, like, put it out there. This is, this is 
my thing. I love chocolate and I love cake and batter. Batter was my thing. So I guess I'm very creative and I decided one day instead of making a cake, I would wear it. So I stripped down and completely naked in my apartment in Brooklyn. My roommate, who is a chemical engineer, was not home. Thank God he would have had me probably arrested. Um, and I, I made a couple of batters worth of, of chocolate cake, and then I put it all over myself. And I walked around the apartment like this, going, I am free of my obsession. I am free of my obsession. I, like Frankenstein, like, I don't care that I love chocolate. And it did not work. Cause I, and I baked a cake and ate it. Um, and continue to do that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was delicious. Um, the real bottom, actually, I didn't even know it was a bottom, to be honest. What what convinced me once I came back to OA in 1990, so I started in 87 and dabbled, um, and then in 1990 I came back, but um, once I came back, I realized my bottom had happened in 1989, and I shared this recently at a meeting, and it's not something that I share to be um, sensational or, or even get sympathy. It's just a fact of my life. My eating disorder led me to getting raped when I was 22. And I won't go into details here, but it was very clear in hindsight once I got abstinent, like, oh, I ate my way through my fear, put myself in a position to be hurt. Like it says, I think, on pages 60 to 63 somewhere, we were a doormat. We, we, I put myself in a position to be hurt on a regular basis because of my eating disorder, because of my denial about the eating disorder. What really got me into OA is um, a very tiny jar of planter's peanuts. I said I was going to eat 10 peanuts. I ate the whole jar, and I went, I guess I'm a compulsive overeater. So... Food beat me all the time, um, and I finally stayed down, you know, like a boxer. <laughs> like, life was counting, and it was counting not me. It wasn't counting me out. It was counting me out of one area of my life, the way I was raised, how I internalized the messages I was getting, and how I acted as a result of those that combination, and I was not, here's, you know, happy is one end of the spectrum, I guess, and I don't know, or maybe peace is serenity is one end of the spectrum, and then the other end of the spectrum is utter despair and suicidal thoughts, and if not acting out on attempted suicide, I mean, really on my knees, devastated. I was never um, severely overweight. But the despair in my face, I used to hand out, you know, people would hand out, and they still do this, pictures of what it was like if they were a larger size or too small of a size. My pictures were about my face and the utter, like, palpable misery. Like, you would not... I, I happened to be very funny back then. I'm not going to say I'm funny now, but I was very funny back then. And so I could sort of pretend a lot of the time that I was... I was fine. I was totally, totally fine. And then as soon as you turned your back and couldn't see my face, the mask would fall. And I'd, I'd be wanting to die all the time. Because I could not control the thoughts. I could not control my body. I could not control the food that was going in. Pause for water. And when I finally surrendered to the peanuts, 
Um, luckily, there were OA meetings down the street from where I lived that I could walk to three times a week. And that was, uh, I will say now, you know, what my early recovery was like and how I used all the great tools and the steps. I'm just moved sort of standing here, really, like, it's a big deal that 12-step programs exist. <laughs> Along with penicillin, I think it's one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century. Um, you all could have been in that room with me in 1990 when I walked in and really, really was willing to hold your hand and say the serenity prayer. I really didn't like anyone. I don't even like you. <laughs> you know, like, I still, my inclination still is not to like people. And then that goes away. That's my first thought. The second thought is, what am I afraid of? Because if I don't like something, you know, it's such a blanket statement. I don't like people. Like, what is it that I'm afraid of? And I learned by showing up, holding hands, saying the serenity prayer, reading the literature, listening to people share their struggles with food and their solutions around food. And I, I just was willing to do it because probably like all of you, would you come if your life was great before? I, I don't want to speak for you, but I would not have come if my life was working. I would not have come if I liked my body or liked myself. I would not have held your hand if I thought, I'm okay. I can do the next day and the next day. I was emotionally retarded. I was. I was spiritually bankrupt. My relationships were terrifying to me. And I learned to build friendships in this program. I, I remember my first meal out with a friend in program, my first year of abstinence. She invited me to brunch. And I did not want to go because I did not want to put fork to food to mouth. I was so ashamed um, of what my eating was like. But I'm going to say you as if you were there for me because you were in spirit. You helped me eat in public. You helped me have friends who were not obsessed with what I was eating. They might have been obsessed with what they were eating, but they were not obsessed with what I was eating. I got a sponsor very early on in 1990. And I worked the steps very slowly. And I read the literature very slowly because I come from the perfectionist world of if you can't do it perfectly, don't bother. That was a message that I got in my house. And I'm unlearning that still. I will say that I have been exceptionally abstinent for 26 years, but not perfectly because perfect doesn't exist. Especially when the rules are a little gray. Like, I was always playing out a compulsive overeater, someone who ate too much, always to the point where, you know, food would get stuck in my throat because there was no more room to go down, and I would still be stuffing food in, and I couldn't even swallow it, so I would throw up. Not intentionally throw up. Um, I would just make myself so sick that I would shiver and shake feverish and throw up. That didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough to know that I had a problem. Um, so the reading of the literature. You know, I started on step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, and I just knew alcohol, food was my alcohol, that I have an alcoholic mind. It doesn't matter what substance or behavior I engage in. If I'm doing it in the way an alcoholic does, I have an alcoholic mind. It is cunning and powerful and baffling, and I read a paragraph at a time because as badly as I wanted to 
fix whatever I thought was wrong with me and fix this food thing and fix this body thing. I had tried fast and furious before and in program and outside of program and it didn't work and I was broken when I arrived and I had to crawl like someone with, you know, broken limbs. I crawled through the steps. I wrote a lot, you know, I'd read a paragraph and I'd put little notes in the margin. Me, I get it. Oh, that reminds me of. And that was the beginning of the uncovering process for me. I didn't do it alone. I will um, say that I compulsively called people. <laughs> it was, uh, and one of the things I love is like, yeah, we, my, my will in my life, I, I have to turn that over. And I skipped step two there, but I'm not going to go in order. I'm very bad at going in order. So that's that. But where I land is where I feel like my focus needs to go. That's like I'm talking for myself, really. And if someone gets something out of it, I'm super happy. But this is a chance to remember my recovery where I've been so that I keep growing in the light, so to speak. So turning my will in my life over means sometimes using my will to really dig into the steps and the tools. Like that's a proper way for me to use this thing, free will that I believe my version of God gave me, to turn my focus from the problem into the solution. So lucky people early in my recovery got a million phone calls from me because I was using my will to reach out for help. And I was taught to make at least three phone calls a day. To one call was to someone with more time in the program. Could be one day, could be one year, could be ten years. One, program, one call was to someone with about the same time. Maybe we came in the room at the same time. And one was to someone with less time. So that was how I built sort of a cushion of community around my life, my new life, because it was more than recovery. It was life. Do I want to live life the way I was, or do I want to learn some new tools so that I can be happy, joyous, and free, if not every moment of the day, at least know that that is not only okay to strive for, but it's, it's the thing in the big book and in Alcoholics Anonymous given to all the other programs. We are not a glum lot. We are living a happy, joyous, and free life one day at a time. And it is based on my spiritual condition, moment to moment. And um, I needed everybody in program to remind me of how to do life. Because I was learning like a new language. For me, OA very quickly became not a thing of shame. When I walked in, I was like, oh, God, I'm in OA. I'm that person. I'm that person. And I don't know what that person is. I mean, we all. I feel like the era that I grew up in, just no one asked for help. Help is such a sign of weakness. And I feel like today, you know, my husband's an elementary school teacher, and he teaches kids with special um, needs. And he finds that they're having such a hard time apologizing for things and taking responsibility for things and saying, yes, I did that. And not just the kids with special needs. All, like, he works with all the kids there. He's like, accountability is not something that these kids get taught. And I feel like that I, I grew up with a family who did not know no one apologized for anything that they did. The only time my dad ever apologized was when I refused to take his call for over a week. My parents were divorced, and he was terrified of losing me, and he behaved very, very, very badly once. And we had spoken every day since I was eight. We spoke every day on the phone. I was 15, and I cut him off. My mother hated my father. My mother said to me one day, your father keeps calling. He's crying. 
pick up, you know, talk to him. That was, and I got an apology. I don't want to work that hard for an apology. And I try really hard, diligently, not to make other people work that hard for apologies for me. The best, honest to God, the I'm going to try to think of like the top three things the program has given me since I came and stayed. A joy in accountability. Like my side of the street is pretty spotless, but not perfect, because I'm sure I'm offending and hurting people left and right without knowing it. Despite my best efforts, there are people who aren't going to like me, they're not going to like what I have to say, and... And maybe sometimes I am really rude or inconsiderate. And if I'm aware of it, I, I make amends. And if someone brings it to my attention, I make amends. But I feel clean. Like when I was in my disease and when I do feel the compulsion come on, because I'm not free of compulsion, I feel the thoughts and I feel the body obsession come up. When I'm in that, I do not feel clean. I feel like I need a shower on the inside. I've often said I feel like I need a soft, cushy blanket, you know, like to eat a soft, cushy blanket because I was so raw and hurting inside. And I just wanted to be filled up with something, you know, with, with no edges, with no sharp points because I was very sharp and pointy in the way I treated myself. Okay, so accountability. I've had moments of peace and serenity that I never thought were possible. And they have to do with, I think they come when I'm aware that I'm not living my life just for myself. I'm living it because God put me here. And I have something to do. Often I don't even know what it is I'm supposed to do, except in broad terms, I ask God to direct my thoughts and my actions. And then I wait for an intuitive thought, or sometimes the intuitive thought is just there. I sort of know exactly what I'm supposed to do. If it's a job, if it's a conversation with my husband or a friend or a colleague, I kind of know what it is. And if I need help doing what I know it is that I need to do, there are people in these rooms that I call. Um, So peace and serenity, knowing that my life is not... My life is so much bigger than I thought it was. I mean, I had... I had one goal when I was a child. It was to get a job where I made enough money where I didn't need anybody. Because I wanted to take care of myself. My family was not safe for me. Really, I didn't know that. I couldn't have said that at the age of eight or nine. Why do I want to work so hard and get a job on the Upper East Side and have all white walls and like these sort of sanatorium, sanitarium? I felt like I was crazy. I just want like white carpet, white couch, white walls. I felt so dirty and messy inside. That was the image that I had. If I just made, you know, more money than God, I wouldn't even need God. I could just not need anybody. My life is um, not that. My life is full because not even that I need God, but that I'm so grateful to, in my opinion, be an emanation of God, flawed as that might be on a human level. Spiritually, I think we're all perfect. Spiritually, I don't think of myself as having a disease. Um, I don't think of anyone as having a disease. I feel like there's a humanism to this path for me. And in the humanism is 
illness and error and hatred and all the things that keep me from this sunlight of the spirit. Um, So I'm saying sunlight of the spirit because in my fourth steps, I've done countless fourth steps. I've worked the steps countless times. Um, Sunlight of the spirit was something I never heard the first 20 times I did a fourth step or fifth step. We're reading the big book. I'm a slow learner, but um, things eventually sink in. So I remember the first time... um, my sponsor a number of years ago, she was, I chose her because she was a big book thumper. So if you know what that means, right? Like, you know, someone who can quote the Bible left and right, she could quote the big book left and right. And I wanted that. Many years into my program, I really wanted someone who was going to be a taskmaster about that. And doing my fifth step with her, turning over um, my inventory to her, she, every single thing from resentments to fears to sexual misconduct to harms done to others, if I looked at the result of all of that, the payoffs were I was blocking myself from the sunlight of the spirit every single time, and I had a choice. I have a choice. I can continue to engage in compulsive behavior and block myself from the sunlight of the spirit, or I can work the steps and and have fellowship and be of service and live this new way of life and be in the sunlight of the spirit. The payoff always was for me drama. I'm addicted to drama. So it's important for me to say, you know, if I was to to say I was raped, there's nothing in me that goes anymore. Like, yeah, that, that happened. There was grief. But I don't, I don't care to make any more mountains in my life. They get made on their own. My job is to break them down <laughs> into molehills. And I did the reverse for, you know, the 22 years. Well, I came into program for good at 22, but it took me another 20 years to realize I was addicted to drama. So I've been, you know, chipping away at the mountains for, you know, good six years. Um, the other one is being a victim. Right? That's the other payoff for me. So I started at one point saying, you know, the three big benefits, the top three that I can think of, accountability, peace and serenity, at least more awareness of that, more experiences of those things. And I am no longer attracted, at least consciously, to being a victim or the drama. Subconsciously, stuff that's under there, like unconscious, subconscious stuff, is still working its way out, and I'll catch myself. When I start to spiral into, I'm so cursed, why is God doing, you know, I'm like, and not even God. I will say the progress is I no longer believe in a punishing God. God no longer does anything to me. In my victim state, I say, I am so cursed, and I don't know who cursed me, but I'm such a loser. I'm so cursed. I can't make a go of anything. Now, when I hear myself even thinking the thought, I know that's not God don't necessarily know how to immediately make myself feel better. Like, I can't use my will to turn that thought all the way around, but I can use my will to be like, maybe I can call someone. It's Do the almost next right thing. Sometimes I don't know what the next right thing is, but there's an almost next right thing. And there's like a looser-fitting garment of life in me. You know, like I just move with a tiny bit more flexibility in my thinking than I used to. 
And that tiny bit of flexibility is like a mountain of difference. I don't know why. Maybe because the universe is infinite, so a tiny bit more flexibility makes a difference for me. Okay, I'm going to end in a minute and just say I, I've gone through a lot in all these years. I, dated, I learned how to date. I started my own businesses. I racked up some achievements. I left relationships. I ended relationships with my immediate family. I've suffered huge losses personally, devastating experiences that I wouldn't wish on anyone. And it's all okay. And I've been abstinent exceptionally well, considering, despite, through it, imperfectly. And I will say, if anyone's wondering, my abstinence is just no binging. So that's the gray area for me. That's a binge. Sort of like porn. I know it when I see it, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, One of my first sponsors told me when I was struggling with what, how much I should put on my plate, she said, you know, your abstinence is, you can eat whatever you want as long as you love yourself. That was impossible at the age of 22 or 23. It was impossible last year, even for me. But this year, I kind of get it. I don't know why. But I kind of get, like, it doesn't, This is the body that came to the meeting. This is the body that's going to go to the next thing I do tonight. This is the body that's going to go home to my cat, dog, and husband. This is the body that's going to get up and go to her meeting tomorrow morning. This is the body that's going to go do business. And it has to go with me everywhere, and I'd rather not hate it. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Doesn't mean... I don't want it to be better sometimes. The body, the life. But I come back to the moment of now, and I need nothing. All I really need is a tiny awareness that I'm here to be of service to God and that God is my life. Thank you. I see the sign of 10 minutes and that um, I'm grateful to be able to be here um, on this day. Like, I didn't think I would care that much. You know, because it's just my life. But I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you. Questions? Questions? Yeah. Hi. Thank you for your happy birthday. Um, do you mind if I ask about coming off from uh, that first for this I, yeah, the, sure. The question was um, asking in general about cutting off family members for good. If I said for good, um, it's not exactly what I meant because I don't know what tomorrow has to bring. But for my sanity, for my health, I've set very, very clear boundaries with my mother, my brother, really just the two of them. I have a stepmother who I had in my life from the time I was 13, and she recently left my life when my very mentally ill father divorced her. And she got, um, just this past July, got engaged in, like, 
everything happened within six months and she's no longer in my life and I'm grieving that loss and I also recognize for her I'm probably close to the scene of the crime of my dad my dad's not a well person but um, as I said so I have set boundaries and I have received boundaries <laughs> no it's not it's it's hard with my mother who is a you know, we don't diagnose other people in these rooms. We typically don't say, my mother's a compulsive overeater, but um, it's not because of a food addiction. It's because she is, from a therapist's perspective that we saw together, pathologically narcissistic. And it hurts. And I've been trying to make it work my whole life. And like the jar of peanuts that beat me, <laughs> You know, the can of peanuts that beat me. Trying to get in the, the ring with my mother and make a relationship work with her. I, I was beaten. I can't do it. So I set a very clear boundary. She knows the requirements of what I need to have her in my life for us to possibly have a new paradigm of existence. She won't do it. And it's been three years this January since I've had any contact with her. I will say that I heard people when I first came into the rooms again in 1990, people my age back then saying they had cut off an abusive parent and I had desperately wanted to do it and couldn't. It took me a long time to realize I, I'm tired of hurting myself um, so that I could take care of others. That's one example. Yeah. Thank you. Can you talk about the evolution of your higher powers? Sure. Um, went from horrible to great. <laughs> oh, sorry. The question is, could I talk about the evolution of my relationship with my higher power or my higher power? So I really did think God hated me. You know, I, I didn't believe in God when I was a kid, but when I came into program, I just assumed that I was a piece of crap, that God did make junk, and that I was proof positive. So... I didn't know that I had a relationship with God until I started working the second step the first time. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, the writing that I did, it was brutal. You know, I'd read it to my sponsor and she'd be like, whoa, that's some heavy stuff you've got going on there. You really have a strong relationship with your higher power. That's horrible, but you have one. You know, you believe there's one, but boy, he's like a Nazi. And... Um, that was the first time I realized I had any relationship with a God of my understanding. Okay, so I was one of those people in program who would hear newcomers come in and be like, oh my God, God is so great. I love God so much. I really got this God thing and I feel myself guided so perfectly in my life and I'd want to shoot them because I was abstinent, but I wasn't happy with my relationship with God. I would say the prayers. I would say the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, the serenity prayer, anything with God in it. Um, St. Francis of Assisi is my favorite prayer. But I just, I so badly wanted to believe, and I couldn't. I was one of those godless, abstinent people. But I acted as if, right? I would start, you know, the, my first abstinence experience was praying before every meal. You know, God, please let me know that I am enough, that I have enough, that I do enough. 
and then I would start eating. And at the end of my meal, when the plate was empty, God, please let me know. So I would act as if even I was praying to something I didn't really have a nice relationship with. But I started, you know, it, I started listening to other people's versions of higher power. I understood that the acronym, you know, that God could be an acronym for good orderly direction, and that helped me. I slipped in. You know, I feel like I snuck in the back door to God after, in 2012, after struggling for all those years in program with an iffy God at best. I mean, my sponsor tried everything. One of my sponsors. I've had many. Um, But one of them was really, really deeply steeped in her higher power. And she was like, God's your boyfriend. God's your friend. She was trying everything. And she, it did work. She really consistently asked me to seek out this higher power and build a relationship. And in 2012, I met someone who became kind of my spiritual mentor. He had been in 12-step programs for many years, had 22 years of um, sobriety from meth. And he was studying a particular book outside literature that spoke to me. And he taught me how to take it slow, like I did with the 12 steps, and begin praying and meditating with this thing in mind. And it changed my life. I felt like I finally, sort of like when you fall in love, you're like, oh, that's what everyone meant. You know, like you don't know till you have the experience. Oh, God, that's what that is. So my concretely... God is spirit for me. <laughs> you know, like that's what God is everything. The big book says God's everything or nothing at all. We get to decide. You decide. You make the choice. All these things I've been hearing about for years, you know, finally made sense. Oh, I have been namby-pamby about this. I have been like, God is, God isn't. I don't know. God hates me because he's not giving me this or she's not giving me that or it's not giving me whatever. Now I realize that the I have the realization that God is, I just have to be careful, you know, it's, it's, it's a sensitive thing. It's a gentle, sort of tender relationship. And I'm not an expert in it, but I will say that a lot of my serenity has come from meditating and, the real, and experiencing the ability to commune with the thing that I call God even if that's just five seconds at a time, to meditate for five seconds would be like, one of the things I like to say is, I of my own self can do nothing. Which is basically, it's all in the 12 steps, you know, it's all over the big book. I'm the, I'm the hole in the donut. I'm empowered by being nothing. And in that nothingness, then I make room for my version of God to come in and direct me. My version of God to be my life. My idea of me is super small. So I try to spiritually die daily with my my ego. Like, let it go. Give it. Here, I'm making a decision to turn my will, my ego over so that a bigger thing of my understanding can come in and be me. That's sort of it. Mm. Falling asleep listening to a meditation tape last night was one of the things that I do. But, um, oh, I keep forgetting to repeat the question. Can I talk about my current spiritual practice? Right. My spiritual practice is 
reading literature that takes me into a state of willingness to close my eyes and meditate and think about God. Or praying, saying the St. Francis of Assisi prayer or the third step prayer. Sometimes just saying the word, you know, God, I offer myself, but saying God, and I know what's going to come next. And saying that is like, um, like Pavlov's dog. I hear it and I go, uh, I'm thinking of a visual image of just like sinking in, like, like I sink into what I know makes sense to me about God. And in that tiny moment, I've communed. And if I'm lucky, there's a sense of union. And then I go about washing my dishes. <laughs> and when I'm washing dishes, thank you. I just got a thank you sign. When I wash dishes, I try to think about God, too. So that, I think, is it. Thank you.